0: Hey, so I imagine you're listening to this podcast because you're an artist yourself and you want some insider tips, insights, and general advice from artists you respect. One aspect of the business we sometimes discuss on Best Advice is rollout strategies. When you're dropping new music, you want to give it the best chance of getting heard. It's all about reaching the right listeners at the right time. That's why our team at Spotify for Artists built Marquee. Marquee is a marketing tool for turning listeners into bigger fans of your new music. With Marquee, you can send full-screen recommendations of your latest album, EP, or single to the right fans as soon as they open the app. Listeners who see your Marquee are twice as likely to save your tracks, making it a better way to develop your audience than trying to drive streams from social media. To find out more, go to artists.spotify.com slash marquee. I'm Rachel Swaby, and this is Human Race. This episode, episode 29, this is the last episode of season three of Human Race. But I'm sorry to say that it's also the final episode of Human Race, the podcast. Runner's World has decided not to continue this show. This has just been the greatest gift of my professional life. tell your stories and to talk to you every other week. I have always believed that the greatest stories on earth happen in our everyday lives. And after two years of doing this show, I am now more confident in that than ever. When I've explained the show to people in the past, I've said that, yeah, it's a show about running, but it's not really about running at all. It's about triumph and grief and strength and beauty and friendship. It's about control and confidence and love and community. I swear, now every time I see someone running or lacing up their shoes, I feel like it's this small miracle. Like this small act can make such a big difference in your life, in my life, in our community's lives. So... I wanted to dedicate this final episode to you and your stories. A while ago I asked you to write in to tell me why you run and I got so many amazing responses like just overwhelmed with how many incredible stories came in. These are a few of those stories.
1: My name is Tony Steidler Dennison, I'm 56 years old, I live in Iowa City, Iowa. And I run because I want to live to see 70, which none of the men on my dad's side of the family have accomplished. So my mom and dad were divorced uh, just before I was three. So I never really knew my biological dad. My mom remarried shortly afterwards. uh, And my stepdad was, was a guy who sort of had this belief that if it happened before him, it just didn't happen. So the subject of my biological dad never came up. You know, it was just always that I was uh, you know, my, my adopted dad's son and I didn't really know that even that I was adopted until, until I was 11 or 12 was when my mom told me so I mean the result was that I didn't really have any family history, I didn't have any family medical history and didn't really, didn't really give that much thought until uh, our daughter was born in 1988 and she has a, a really rare neurological syndrome called the Acardi Syndrome there were, at the time that she was born, there were only about 300 documented cases worldwide. So, and I, it was, re- that was really the first time that I realized that I only had like half a family medical history. I never really gave it much thought. So I sort of started this search for my dad, my biological dad, at that time. Uh, I knew nothing about him other than just the sketchy few details that my mom had told me. I knew his name, and I quickly found out. Just how many Dave Moores there are in the world? There's a lot of them, so we we did we just really didn't have any luck in finding it. In 2002, I came home in the evening from a meeting, and my mom sent me and had sent me an email. And you have to understand that I'm I had been on the internet since before there was a web. I was, you know, I was the geek of the family, literally, and and my mom had been on the web for about a week. (laughs) She signed up as his best friend from high school on classmates.com. So that would have gotten his attention by itself. But add to that the fact that this friend of his had died eight years after they got out of high school. He was killed in a grain bin accident. So I mean, this immediately got my dad's attention and he turned around not knowing who he was responding to and sent my mom back an email saying, who are you? Is this some kind of joke? Well, think about it. We knew right away this was confirmation that it was the right guy, number one, and and I had his email address
2: <laughs>
1: literally in about 15 minutes composed an email to him that really started out. Hi, my name is, and I was born to these people on this day. I've been looking for you for a long time, and I have no doubt now that I've found you. I tried to make it clear to him in the email that I really was. There was, I really wasn't after anything. You know, I didn't really want anything. That I was just curious, but I, you know, I was interested in in having a discussion with him. And I asked him in that email, you know, if if it's if this is too much for you or for your family. I understand. Um, just let me know if you're not interested. Don't just leave me hanging. I hit enter on the keyboard. And as I'm hitting enter, my wife is kind of patting me on the back. Like, are you sure you want to do this? And she was just being protective. You know, she was worried that I was setting myself up for disappointment and I hadn't thought about that. (laughs) And then I thought, Oh my gosh, what have I done? And he got back to me the very next day, two weekends later, They came to Iowa City, and we sat in a room for the first time. And I realized, uh, you know, it's really interesting. There's always an ongoing debate about what's nature and what's nurture. Had somebody planned this out like this, it would have been the perfect experiment because we had the genes, but we didn't have the, the nurture. It's remarkable. We had the same mannerisms, the same facial expressions, the same sort of weird sense of humor. Um, the same sort of general gregariousness, the things that you thought would be nurture were actually nature. So so we started to get, a, you know, we got an answer that, no, there's no history of uh, my daughter's syndrome in the family. But I also got, for the first time, you know, the knowledge that all the men on that side of the family who were smokers and sedentary for, for most of their lives weren't really active at all. I was a still smoking myself. I hadn't smoked for 30 some years. And, and then, uh, in 2008, finally, uh, you know, I had watched my dad struggle to breathe, uh, standing still, not even exerting himself, but my sister and I decided we were going to quit smoking. Uh, and I managed to quit. I don't know if she has quit yet, but, um, I started running about a year later. Uh, uh that was in, July of 2008. My dad passed away in in, uh, September of 2009. So we had just a little, just a little, little less than eight years together. Um, Which was, which was, you know, it was, it was remarkable. I, it turned out so well, the relationship was so good. It was really good. And it was interesting, you know, the little things that you catch, that you catch the first weekend that they came to Iowa city, We came to our house for dinner and he rode with me. We had to stop at the grocery store. We walked through the grocery store and I realized halfway through this trip that for the first time in my life, people would look and see us walking through the store and say, oh, father and son, there's a father and son. That was the first time that had ever happened. (laughs) So, so he passed away and it took, you know, it took, uh, I had quit smoking and uh, that was in September of 2009, and, and early in 2010, I, I just, you know, I, I decided I really had this this goal. Um, knowing that none of the men on that side of the family had lived to 70, I got kind of determined that that was going to happen. Um, I started walking on the treadmill, and then I started running on the treadmill. Once I once I started running outside, it was all over. I was never going back to a treadmill <laughs> again. I set the goal to run Boston within three years by 2015. I got hurt in 2014, so that set it back a year. But I did manage to run Boston at 16 and then this year at 17. So I get kind of obsessed about that. I'm 56 years old now, you know, and I, and I promise you I'm healthier at 56 than I was at 46 or 36 or 26 and maybe healthier than I was at 16, but you know time time will tell i don't know how you know i don't i think i've been at some but you know i i'm not willing to to stop running and find out <laughs>
3: Yeah. Okay.
4: I'm Emily Slack.
3: Um, my name is Matthew Slack. I am 56 years old.
4: I'm 17. Um, and I live in Williamsburg, Virginia. When I turned out 15, so my sophomore year, my dad started kind of pushing about, Hey, when I was around your age, I ran a marathon. It was
3: 1978. Uh, right after my 17th birthday, I ran a marathon.
4: And a few days before the first indoor track practice, my dad said it. My dad told me about his marathon one last time.
3: Yeah, I, I would go to her.
4: And I was like, okay, fine. <laughs> I'll start running.
3: She really wanted to do anything that I had done. She wanted to make it a point, you know, she's she's a girl, I'm a boy.
4: But I'll do it. Oh, I'll do higher, faster, stronger, better. He was like, "Well,
3: um, sounds like a lot of talk to me. Let's let's do what you got."
4: It was so hard. <laughs> I could barely make it through the first week, and I was like, I couldn't make it upstairs. I was so sore, but I remember just feeling so like happy and so excited, and it was something that I realized my dad and I had in common.
3: For me, it was it was everything.
4: He ran all the time and he started and he just like instantly fell in love. He would, um, by the time he was 15 or 16, once he got into, um, track,
3: I I spent my morning, my noon and my evening going off for a run, either one or two miles or 10 or 15 miles, depending on what my whim and timing would allow.
4: He didn't have a very good home life growing up.
3: My, 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 parents had issues and they divorced when I was younger. And um, the, 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 the best and only way that I could get out and go do something without anybody questioning or asking why or what was, hey, I'm going for a run. Okay. And I would go and I would disappear.
4: And so he used running as a way to escape and to get out of his head and to just let everything go. And it's made him, he said it's made him a much better person. And I mean, he's great. Like He's a great person. Running for me has helped me deal with a lot of stress with school.
3: It's a great decompressor.
4: My dad and I are a lot alike. So when we get upset, we both like to just go.
3: Get away. Go for a run.
4: We can butt heads a bit. Nothing major, but... There's been some moments where it's just like, man, like I don't know why he would do this or that.
3: In a lot of ways, Emily and I are polar opposites in the way we think, in our beliefs, in our politics.
4: And running has helped us realize how much we have in common, and it's just helped us bond. Long term, one day, I want to run Boston.
3: And I would, I would be thrilled death to, to be there with her when she finishes it.
4: But that's a long way away right now because right now, <laughs> I just need to work on my. 5K for (laughs) cross-country. I want to see if I can get under 20 um, minutes on my 5K, see if I can pick up the pace.
2: I am proud
3: of her because she is doing the best that she can do, and I can see that in what she does. And she's that way in everything she does.
4: Even if I was running super, super slow, or if I was barely running at all, I think you'd just be proud that I was doing it anyway, as long as I'm running. I'm
0: quite
5: happy. My name is Amy Page, and I am 35 years old, and I am in beautiful Juneau, Alaska. I graduated from law school in 2008, which was the worst possible time to graduate from anything because it was the kind of the beginning of the great economic collapse. Um, There were no jobs to be had in New Mexico, which is where I had grown up and where I'd always lived. And so I applied for jobs in Alaska, which always needs lawyers because it doesn't have an independent law school of its own. Um, And I got one. And I was incredibly naive about what that meant. So um, I swiggled my then boyfriend, now husband, into moving to Juneau with me, sight unseen. Um, Neither of us had been. I had never been interested in going to Alaska. And uh, that was nine years ago on June 28th of this year. Um, So we moved into a house that we hadn't seen. It would flood every time the snow melted. And so we would have to get up at, like, 3 o'clock in the morning for my husband to get to work on time and take snow shovels and just, like, drain the garage so we could drive the car out in the morning. Like, I grew up in Mexico, which has 330 sunny days a year. So when we moved here, I genuinely believed that it would be like Albuquerque of the North. Sunny days and blue skies. And so we got here on June 28, 2008. And it rained from June 28th till October 31st without any break. And I was shocked. You have to understand. I was like a newborn baby in everything that I understood about our life. I moved into a job in a town with no roads in or out and a population of 30,000 people and immediately started working in law enforcement, which means that everybody knows who you are and what you look like and in some cases where you live. I'm a prosecutor, so I specifically practice criminal law. I didn't expect the part where I would leave my house and see all the people that I convict all the time, like at the grocery store. I went from being an anonymous person in a sprawling city in the desert southwest to being damp and, um, you know, constantly on. You're always working. It's a -a 24-hour-a-day job and... None of that was anything that I was prepared for. And, I was, and it, that manifested itself in some pretty dark ways for a long time. So my husband is a brewer at the Alaskan Brewing Company. So he works shift work, which means that for two-thirds of the year, we just don't see each other. Um, and so the end result was that I would go home to this empty house with my dogs and I would drink and eat every single night until I passed out. I've always been a big girl. I've never been athletic. I love cooking. The slight creative energy I have goes into cooking. Um, And this was this turned into the ultimate hibernation, and it was really deeply depressing. Five years into our Alaska adventure, we were going to a a homebrewing festival out of town that for my husband's job, and they had a a five k, and I suggested to my husband that we run it. So he's like, Yes, let's run. And at the time, I weighed like 265 pounds at the time. Like, I have never been athletic. The closest I ever got was like marching band. Um, The prospect of running a 5K is a tall order. I gave myself a 20 day window to learn how to run 58 miles. So on May 5th, 2013, I took my first steps as a runner. I didn't even have running shoes, I just put on like whatever kind of like passable athletic footwear that I owned, And I thought you could run like a mile, you know, I thought that's a thing you could do if you just like went out and ran. I I think that I made it like somewhere between 15 and 25 steps before I'm like sucking wind. So I was so scared. Like every new runner is, I was so scared about being last. And I told my husband that, like I was brink of tears scared. And he tells me, you know, I will run with you. I will stay with you the whole time. Do not be afraid. So we're approaching the finish line. Of course, we're last. Of course. It's been like 45 minutes we've been running. And he kind of hangs back. This is the sweetest thing. And he gives me the chance to be second to last. So that I would not be so afraid to do it again in the future. And it was like. Let's do this for the rest of our lives. It was so much love. It was so much love. It was so sweet. And it was so triumphant. Um, And since then, I mean, I ran my 1st sixty 50K last weekend. I couldn't stop after that. Like, my whole life changed my whole life. It changed my whole life. Oh, my God. So much. Oh, my God. It's changed everything. The biggest thing was that I hated Alaska. I hated it so much. You know, I mean, like, it's sunny 30 days a year here. We've gotten, like, three inches of rain in the last two days. And the thing about running in Alaska is that you have to suck it up. There is not an excuse for bad weather because it's never good. The more I force myself to experience Alaska's constant changes and wild atmosphere, the more I fell in love with it. And now... I'm crazy about it. Every day the fog is something new to, to enjoy. Every day the waterfalls are slightly different. Every day the snow moves further up or further down the hillside. And it it I'm completely in love with it now. I mean, obviously, it gives you so much confidence. Um, you know, as a person whose job is public speaking, whose job is being present in the community, I feel like running has given me a way to believe in myself that I never thought I would have as a person who's always been overweight. I'm a woman, I'm a person of color, and now I'm not scared anymore. Like, I'm not scared to do my job. I'm not scared to, you know, represent this community. Running has helped me in my work. Um, It's helped me in my personal life. I mean, I got engaged during a race. Um, It's it's, you know, I mean, it's just been
0: everything, doing everything. Human Race will be back with more of your stories after the break. Rachel here, real quick. For this next piece, Team RWB stands for Team Red, White, and Blue. It's a running group dedicated to connecting veterans to their community through physical and social activity. And to learn more about this incredible group, you can check out episode 16 of the Runner's World show. And now, back to the stories.
6: My name is Kathy Denton, and I'm 40 years old. I live in Knoxville, Tennessee, and I run in memory of my cousin... Uh, Daniel, Tyler Lee, who was killed in Afghanistan. So Danny and I were not close when we were growing up. Um, He was raised in Kentucky and I was raised in Tennessee. Um, And we would see each other, you know, a couple times a year. But our childhoods were completely different. We just didn't have anything in common. Uh, Danny ended up moving down to Tennessee uh, and lived with my mom and dad. Um, so when he moved in with my mom and dad, I mean he immediately became um a part of my everyday life. I wasn't living at home at the time, but I was still in the same area. Um and at that time I was a single mom. So I had a little one that I was raising, and Danny really became a very solid role model for my oldest daughter, and they got to be really, really close. So over the course of a couple of years. Our relationship went from virtually nothing. I mean, you wouldn't have known that we were cousins to he was one of the best friends that I had. He, Danny was so funny because when he wanted to do something, he was going to do it. That's all there was to it. Nothing was going to stop him once he had his mindset on something. But he was also very, um, gosh, he was just a funny guy. Sometimes it was hard to take him serious. So we had the conversation of, you know, joining the military is kind of really you're you're going to join the military. Not that I didn't think he couldn't, but because it was just very much he worked a normal 40, 45 hour Monday through Friday job. And then the next day, boom, he's enlisted. And before I knew it, he's at boot camp. And I mean, it it happened so quick that I don't I don't think I knew it could happen that fast it was different. I mean, he was, he was just funny. Danny was a random guy. I mean, we're talking about somebody that, um, bid on a mechanical bull once on the internet, just to see if he could get it and bring it into my parents' house and surprise them. I I mean, like like it's, it's random stuff. He texted me one day, do you think your mom and dad would mind if I had a helicopter? like, what are you doing? I was, my family and I were visiting Danny um, when he was home in Kentucky one year. He had, he had come back from um, his first deployment. And um, when I went to see him, you know, we had talked about, yes, I had lost weight, um, but I was still trying to lose weight. And I went out for a morning jog. Now that's when a morning jog for me was kind of like a slow trot, but I really felt like, I was doing amazing, um, so I went out and I jogged. I did a mile. I was like, Oh my gosh, I've got this! It was amazing. Came back and Danny said, "What? That's it? You're finished?" Um, and so I'm like, what are you? No, I mean, I just, I just ran a mile. And he said, "You know what? The next time I see you, we're going to run together. And you know, while I'm gone, I want you to just continue to run, like give it her all, set goals." And it was probably one of the only serious, serious conversations that Danny and I had. Um, and I won't. I, I won't forget. I hugged him, um, and as I hugged him, of course we were all crying. And he said, "You know what? Don't forget your goals." So when Danny left, you know, I continued to run. It wasn't really as. Um, I, I guess I wasn't as focused on it as maybe I should have been, or I could have been. Um, and I kind of let it fall off my radar, thinking, "Well, when he gets back, when I see him again, um, we'll run." And Danny didn't make it back. The whole reason I run every every time I go out there, he's right there in my mind, because if he could do the things that he did, I can certainly go out and do that for me, for my health, for my family. Um, And then that turned into Danny didn't come back, but there are other veterans in the community that are here. So why don't I reach out to those folks and try to get them involved as well? So Team RWB, I started – well, it was really it was really weird. I looked for a Knoxville chapter because I had seen RWB shirts in Chattanooga and then in Florence, Kentucky. And I was like, who are these people? So I, when I Googled it, there wasn't a Knoxville chapter. So I thought, you know what? If I would have wanted to be there to get Danny back into the community and help him transition into the community, I certainly can do it for other people. So I sent them an email and said, hey, are you looking – to start a chapter, and can I help you if so? And ironically enough, one of the uh, leaders was in town. We met, and the next day, we said, okay, let's get the ball rolling. So, but it, I mean, it's it's been exciting. I've met so many amazing people, and so many veterans I would not have met, you know, had, had I not joined Team RWB. I mean, I think, I think when somebody dies, a lot of times, in my opinion, a lot of times there there is regret. You know, what could have been, what could I have said? Did I do this right? Did I do that right? So really for me is it turned into a way for me to make sure that I was living to the fullest. Myself, my body, taking care of myself, but also making sure I'm there for my family. And running was that connection for me. Like it's my escape. I can go out and I can have the memories now and I can smile or cry, but I, all, I know, I absolutely know that I'm doing the right thing, and I'm doing what Danny and I would have been doing together.
7: Um, well, I'm Kenna, and I'm 14 years old, and I live in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Well, I'd always been running as like, a little girl in, like, elementary school and stuff, I'd always wanted to, like, beat the boys when I was running and, like, the, um, like, at recess and things like that, and there was always a neighborhood race. My dad and me would always run it, and I'd always love it, but I really started getting into running when I was, like, 2015, so when I was 12-ish, and that was the year I was diagnosed with fibrous dysplasia which is basically just an abnormal bone growth. And so for me, this happened on the right side of my face. And it started when I was in about second grade. And it really started picking up two years ago. So seventh grade-ish. At first, I was I thought it was really cool at first. I was like, oh, I have fibrous! Like, look at me. But yeah, yeah. Um, As I got older, um, I started, like, with puberty and everything like that. Seeing yourself, it started really affecting my confidence in some ways. And I'd be afraid to not go out in public, but I'd be a little more self-conscious than other, some of my friends and other girls my age because of my face. Because of running, I think, and just being more mentally strong and appreciative, I've overcome a lot of that. And I barely even think about it. I joined the um, eighth grade cross country team and I was really good at it. (laughs) My coach at one point was like, where have you been these past couple of years? I think just being good at running and placing and everything, um, I wasn't first, but every once in a while I was like fourth to second. And I just think that helped me take in myself, you know?
2: My name's Matthew McCarity. I live in McKinney, Texas, which is north of Dallas, and I'm 40, I'm 43 years old. Yeah, you know, like my mom passed away recently. I got like a whole box of photos that my dad didn't want. I was digging through there, and like I remember finding this picture in there of me with a bike, and that kind of brought back a whole bunch of memories because I remember having that bike, riding it just once. And just being so frustrated with it and so stubborn that after that, I just never touched a bike again. And I was free range, so where I needed to go and how I got there was pretty much all up to me. So walking was always the default. And then sometimes walking would turn into running, like from my house to the playground or from my house to school or just even in the field behind the school. It's just something that just really felt good like I was thinking about my son and my son is autistic and he, uh, eight years old and he's still using training wheels because he just, he can't get over the, the, the nervousness and the danger of taking those wheels off and having to do, do it unsupported. It's tough, but I, I just, it's just one of many different things that he goes through that I go, wow, that sounds familiar. I went through those things too. and, What's been really cool about experiencing him as a child is that, you know, as a kid, I got made fun of a lot for a lot of behaviors that are very similar to him. When, like, it was my wife who uh, maybe suggested that I, I, I might have been autistic as a kid. And I had, I never was ashamed of my son having special needs. But for some strange reason, I had a little, I was a little ashamed of myself And I think that's the, um, you know, you grow up over 30 or 40 years, and I still have some of that society shame and pressure on special needs that that I don't think my son is ever going to deal with. It's not a stigma anymore. But when my mom started learning what my uh, son was going through, it was a huge relief for her as a mom because there, in some ways she thought she was a bad parent because she just couldn't figure out what was going on with her kid behavior wise. And then all of a sudden everything just started making sense. And she was pretty cool and pretty cool and happy with having that experience. Um, I started running, I started running seriously, maybe around 2000, 2001. Um, And then a few years after, you know, running marathons, my mom uh, went to the doctor Routine visit, routine visit turned into her having triple bypass at a hospital. (laughs) And let's see, this was 13 years ago, so my mom would have been my mom would have just been 60. 60 is not that old, and to see your your mom with uh, open heart surgery, and so just being in this room and just watching my mom literally struggle to live, I mean it was it. It was brutal. And, uh, you know, those doctors, like, you know, the surgeons. I'm crying a little bit just because, uh, strangely enough, this morning, I don't often think about my mom very consciously. But I was uh, thinking about her at breakfast today, and so I broke down and cried at breakfast, (laughs) which was horrible timing because I'm trying to get the kids ready for school. So here I am thinking about my mom again the same day. But I just remember those those days going into the hospital. I mean, my mom smoked for over 40 years. And so I don't want to ever put myself in that position. One, because I'm selfish. I want to be healthy and happy. But two, you know, I just really love my wife and love my kids. and So I kind of owe it to them just to make sure. I live beyond what my mom and dad have lived. Yeah, my mom passed away when she was 73, and I want to beat that. Running is the the thing I can control to take care of myself. I'm going to do it. It's something I do to stay sane. It's something I do to remain social because I have a very strong, active running group. I've learned that I can't be a good dad a good husband unless I'm just good to myself so today was I think I'm I'm 96 days into a run streak and so if I wake up and do it then I've done something for myself before anybody else is even awake so no matter what else happens during the day I got that thing in my mental back pocket that tells me that I've done something good and And it really allows me to be really focused on on all the other things I need to do, because it's just crazy after that. I've had dessert for dinner.
0: There's more after the break. Uh,
8: My name is Judy Mick. I am 59 years old, and I live in Roanoke, Virginia. I've lived here, gosh, since 1985, and my claim to fame is that I am a run streaker, and I have run every day since November 20th, 1985. Well, so I run no matter what the weather is, and i um, I've been running since 1978 when I was in college, but not every day until, until 85. And it's really weird. People say, well, did you start out to run every day? And I really didn't because back then in the 70s and 80s, you know, there wasn't social media. There wasn't a lot of, you know, things to go to. And it was just some running buddies of mine. And I, we said, hey, let's just start running every day and see how far we go. And that's how it got started. Uh, my husband and I actually own a Dairy Queen, and he built a garage in the back with a shower. So we're about 10 miles from our store. So a couple of days a week, I would run to work, and he would take my dry clothes for me, and then I would take a shower and be ready to go to work. Even, but when we first got married, we've been married since 82, and on the days before I was a streaker, he could tell the days where I ran and I didn't run. He'd come home from work and maybe I'd had a bad day at work. So he'd go, You didn't run today, did you? So I was like, Okay, maybe I better start going out more. (laughs) I support what he loves and he supports what I love. And it just, it's just worked for us all these years. I run anywhere from 45 to 50 miles a week. So I usually, there's a couple seven or eights in there. And I usually try, if I'm not running for the race, to still do like a 10 or 15 on the weekend. Just, I like the long, runs. I'm an only child and I'm kind of independent, so that's kind of my me time. I love that, you know, two hours on the road by myself. You know, I love the fact, you know, that my running has kept me healthy all these years, but it's um, it also keeps me on, you know, mentally, you know, in a pretty in a good pretty good mood all the time. I'm, you know, big on to positive motivation and I'm big into positiveness in life and I just, um, you know, I think running helps that. You know, I want to be that person that's in, you know, like in runner's world at 90 years old or 100 years old that just did a marathon. <laughs> that's, that's my goal.
9: <laughs> so, my name is Lara Greenberg. I am 29 years old. I live in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and I run for my own therapy and also for my dad. My dad had started showing signs of Alzheimer's when I was still in college. His dad had had Alzheimer's, and so did his uncle, and his mom had dementia. So we kind of knew what the signs were. But my dad was in denial that anything was wrong with him. He thought he was just getting old. And then finally in 2009, he had this stroke, which wasn't that bad of a stroke. It was pretty mild, but it was enough that he needed to see neurologists. And my mom to this day says, it was such a blessing that your father had a stroke because we were finally able to convince him to go to the doctor and it took two years, but we finally got the diagnosis in 2011 that he had early onset Alzheimer's. It's so infuriating because we knew something was wrong. We had known for years. I mean, there was a time that, like, I was home um, for the summer from school. My mom and I went to Target one night, and it was eight o'clock at night. And my dad called us, freaking out. He he went to the office and he opened up his office. He was a dentist. And the hygienists normally open the office for him. He was like, I'm here. And they didn't get here on time. They didn't open it. Where is everybody? They're all late. And my mom was like, Bruce, what are you talking about? And he's like, it's 8 o'clock. Where is everybody? And she's like, Bruce, it's 8 o'clock at night. And because it was summertime and it was still light out, he thought it was the morning. And he had woken up for a nap, showered, and went to work. So this had been going on for years. Um, I think the problem was that the doctors just thought he's so young, there's no way that he could have Alzheimer's. He was 59 by the time he was finally diagnosed. It was awful. And I was 22 or 23 at the time. So I didn't, I didn't handle it well at all. I, uh, I was very impatient with him and I took everything that he, I took it all personally. You know, if he forgot my name, I would get really upset and angry with him. And it took me years to realize, like, this is the disease, it's not him, and you can't be angry with him. I think at the time I I started running, like, my first couple 5Ks here and there, Um, and it was just, like, a feeling, like, proving proving something to myself that I could do something like that that I never thought I'd be able to do before. Um, And when I was home and I would run visiting my parents, and my, my dad was always really impressed by it. And I think that there's a, a common thread there, even though I maybe didn't realize it at the time, but I would come back from these runs and it would be like a two-mile run, nothing crazy. And he'd be like, how far did you go? Where'd you go? How do you feel? You look good. Like he was, he was just very impressed by it all. And so I kept doing these, you know, little races and it just, it made me feel good like I was really accomplishing something. And I think maybe at the time I needed that. Um, more than I think I thought I did. <laughs> and what's really, what's so crazy is that when I ran my first half marathon, that was in that was in 2014, and I ran this Scranton Half Marathon. And my mom had come to see the race. It was the first race she'd ever come see me run. Um, and she knew it was a big deal because I had trained for three months. But six months before, we had put my dad in an assisted living He he just got to be, he was wandering a lot and it got to be too much for my mom to take care of him full time. So when I, when I ran the half marathon and get that runner's high and I saw my mom at the end of the race and I was really emotional and then she was really emotional, which I didn't expect because my mom is not an athletic person in any way. (laughs) Um, I didn't know that the like significance of the race would really resonate with her Um, but she was crying at the end and she, the first words out of her mouth was dad would be so proud of you. And we both just lost it. Even till the end, I still think he knew exactly who I was when I would go visit him, but his, he couldn't articulate what he was thinking very well, but I was able to come visit him shortly afterwards. I don't think he understood when I tried to explain to him what a half marathon was or, how far that really was, but he just thought the medal was pretty, and uh, you know it was something I was happy about, and so he was happy about it. I, I decided after that first one that I would run one half marathon a year, so that was what I did, and it took me like three years before I even contemplated a full marathon. It seemed just like more and more friends of mine were doing the New York City Marathon, and on Marathon Day, I was like obsessively track them online, and I would look at the course and just see all the sites that they would get to see. And I'm from New Jersey, so New York City is like home for me. And my dad grew up in Queens, so there's a lot of connections there for me. And so finally I started like toying with the idea, and by last year, I just decided, like next year, I, I want to be able to do the New York City Marathon. I want to put it on my 30 before 30 list. And do it before I turn 30 years old. And and I'll do it for charity for my dad. I thought about all the things that I would pass that I had connections to with him. Um, You know, there are just certain sites and certain things in the city that make me think of him. Um, (laughs) Before we moved him into a home for his 60th birthday, I took him into the city one day. And he hadn't been in the city in years. And I knew that he couldn't navigate it. So I was kind of like, this is my treat. I'm going to take you around. Uh, I'm going to take you on the subway. And we spent a whole day together. And so <laughs> we went to the Guggenheim because he'd never been to the Guggenheim before. And when we got out of there, I almost lost him because he like ran across the street to one of the pretzel stands to get like a hot pretzel outside the Guggenheim. All he wanted was a hot pretzel. So now it's like these things where every time I see one of those stands, I just think of my dad, like running (laughs) to the hot pretzel stand in the city. So yeah, (laughs) I think of like all that stuff when I run and to this day, I mean, I've always, when I'm training for my longer races, I think of him being at the finish line and that helps me get through the tough miles. And I just think of like how proud he would be. And I can hear his voice in my head cheering me on. He'd actually had a few bouts in the hospital over the last year and a half. And he'd been put on and off hospice and on and off hospice. So I would say that since December, I've been in a, lower state than I normally am. I just haven't really been fully myself because there's been that constant feeling of when am I going to get the phone call that something happened? And I was at the gym doing hill training and strengthening for the marathon. Um, and I answered the phone and, and, and I said, Hey mom, what's up? I'm at the gym kind of letting her know, like, don't bother me right now. I'm getting my workout in. And she, she said, um, can you take a break for a second? And I just, I just knew. And she was like, dad was unresponsive this morning. Um, I don't know how soon, but you should come home. You should think about coming home in the next couple of days. Cause I think this is really the end. Um, so I went home and I waited at home for four days and uh, I got to say goodbye to him with my mom and my brother. And um, he really was taking his time. And so my husband and I came back to Pennsylvania and three hours after we got back, he passed away and it was in the middle of the night. And I, I said to my husband, I was like, clearly he didn't want anybody to be around. He didn't want any fuss. I didn't think, I guess I kind of, I had a feeling that he was going to go sometime this year. And I had a feeling that it might be before the marathon because it's not all the way till November, but. Still, and, and, and I always was nervous that, like, if he passed when I was training, would I just completely fall apart and not be able to do this at all? And instead, I found that, like, I'm training harder and feeling stronger than ever because I'm not much more motivated to do this for him because I feel like he'll be watching me. And I need to show him that I can do it and that I did it for him.
0: This episode was produced by me, Rachel Swaby, with Brian Dalek and Christine Fennessy, with help from Sylvia Ryerson. Our theme music was by Danny Koch. And now I have a list of thank yous. Since this is the last show, there are more than usual. These people, though, they're really important. David Willey took a chance on this crazy idea for a show and supported it and us 110%. He once walked me through an edit on a Saturday while he was watching his kids' baseball game. Christine Fennessy was my editor at the magazine, and she took me seriously when I said I wanted to picture a podcast. She helped with the proposal and built a team internally to support it. She is a force, and I will forever be thankful for her guidance, bravery, and friendship. Brian Dalek gives me the tough feedback I always need, and is always down for an edit no matter how inconvenient the time, and he does all the things I'm not good at. Sylvia Ryerson is a brilliant radio producer, and I'll always be glad for her feedback on this show. Audrey Quinn was the show's first founding editor. Audrey, too, took me seriously when she had really, like, no reason to. Mervin Deganos offered production help during the first and second season. He was a great companion during many all-nighters, and he reported some great shows. David Weinberg, who taught me how to make radio, edited the show's second season. Guest producers, and these are the people responsible for reporting some of my very favorite shows. They include Brian Dalek, Daniel Thompson, Mervin Deganos, Christine Fennessy, Kit Fox, Kit Fox, and Kit Fox, Casey Martin, Willow Belden, Tennessee Watson, Scott Carrier, Karen Given, David Weinberg, and Cindy Kuzma. But thanks, most of all, to you, the listeners. You confirm my belief that absolutely everyone has an incredible story to tell. You also make me more hopeful about the world, and this is absolutely true. Your drive, your kindness, your friendships, your community, your support, they have really inspired me and others. You are something special. Please keep running and please keep telling me about it. I hope to find another venue for these kind of stories in the not-too-distant future. But until then, you can find me on Twitter at Rachel Swaby. And now, I'm going to take your example. You have inspired me over the last two years. And today, finally, I am going to hit the road. In my own grief, I've impulsively signed up for a marathon. I'm going to follow through and finally join a run club, damn it. Anyways, this all feels really hard right now. Impossible to imagine how to move on from you or from here. But I'm going to lace up my shoes and I'm going to take a few steps. And tomorrow I'm going to take a few more. And I hope to see you again, perhaps out on the road.